Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navarra Live. Um, it's the eve of the coronation, but I think we don't have any coronation-related stories for you tonight. Not even reactions to people being stupid when they talk about it. We are having a royal free show this evening, mainly focusing on the local elections, of course. Um, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be sharing this Friday evening with you, despite the weather being glorious outside. I don't know who I'd rather be spending the next hour with than Michael Walker. And of course, our esteemed viewers. Do you think I missed a trick by not finding a sort of react clip for the coronation? Tell us. That's what you can tell us. On the hashtag Navarra Live, are you disappointed I have uh, suspended the Royals from this evening's show? Um, or are you, are you breathing a sigh of relief? Um, do let us know. Um, either in the Super Chats or on the hashtag Navarra Live. Struggling to speak today a little bit. Um, let's get straight on to the local elections. It's been a bad night for the Tories in local elections across England. These are results. These are the results as they stand. The net changes um, at the moment are that the Conservatives are down 793 council seats. Right, so that's net. That's what they gained minus what they lost. So they're down 793. So that's a pretty brutal night for the Conservatives. Labour are up. 436, so a decent night for them. Um, Lib Dems are up 275, and the Greens are up by 179. So bad day for the Conservatives, decent day for everyone else. That's seats, and we can go now to councils. Um, so this is where there was a change in terms of who controlled a district council. So the Conservatives have lost 38 councils. Um, Labour, on the other hand, net have gained 17, the Lib Dems have gained seven, and the Greens have gained one. That one um, might look like a small number, but it's actually significant because, as we'll talk about later, it's the first time the Greens have had a majority on any council. So they've often governed in coalition with other parties, but this is the first time and that they have had a majority on a council. So pretty, it's a, it's a pretty significant plus one there, I think we can say. Um, let's look at the reaction from the political leaders. Rishi Sunak was the first party leader to speak to the media this morning. We've only had a quarter of the results in. Actually, we're making progress in key election battlegrounds like Peterborough, Bassett Law, Sandwell. But the message I am hearing from people tonight is that they want us to focus on their priorities and they want us to deliver for them. And that's about halving inflation, growing the economy, reducing debt, cutting waiting lists and stopping the boats. That's what people care about. That's what they want us to deliver. And that's what I and the government are going to work very hard to do. One of the big early trends is that working class voters look like they're going back to the Labour Party. Do you take personal responsibility for the overall vote? And did Boris Johnson have something that you don't? Well, if you look at the results, we've only had a quarter of the results in, so it's hard to draw firm conclusions. We're actually making progress in key election battlegrounds like Peterborough, like Sandwell, like Bassett Law, for example. And you mentioned the Labour Party. Look, I'm not detecting any massive groundswell of movement towards the Labour Party or excitement for their agenda. What people want us to do is focus on their priorities, halving inflation, growing the economy, reducing debt cutting waiting lists and stopping the boats. Those are the country's priorities. Those are this government's priorities. And that's what we're going to deliver. That was Rishi Sunak speaking just after a quarter of the votes were counted. It didn't get much better for them as the results came in, as we've just explained to you. Also, I thought a bit strange to have a political leader saying, no, I mean, this isn't a big problem because it doesn't seem like they're enthusiastic about the other party. Well, what does that mean? That just means that it was a bad night for you because people actively hate you. I think it's better to lose because your opponent, your, your opponent is, inspires... Um, enthusiasm 
rather than saying, no, they don't like either of us. They just hate us more. Strange defense from a prime minister. Um, as you can imagine, Keir Starmer was a bit more chirpy than Rishi Sunak. And we're having fantastic results across the country. Plymouth, what a night they've had in Plymouth. And then Stoke. And up to Middlesbrough, all the places that we need to win, the battlegrounds. And make no mistake, we are on course for a Labour majority at the next general election. was all about the cost of living and we had a positive case to make. We understood what it's like not to be able to make ends meet and we said what we would do to help people with their everyday bills. And the government, the Prime Minister, said nothing. And that's because they're the problem, not the solution. And what we've shown together is that we can make change. We've changed our party. We've won the trust and confidence of voters. And now we can go on to change our country. So change is possible. A better Britain is possible. Well done to all of you. Fantastic morning. Thank you so much. So Starmer looked happy, but the Lib Dem leader, Ed Davey, looked even more keen. In fact, Ed Davey was so excited with the results, he got his hands on a massive clock. Are you ready? Yes! Ten! <laughs> That's right. Well, this is sort of textbook so Liberal much. Democrat victory parade, I think. We've seen before them use bulldozers Friends, to knock down blue walls. We've seen hammers and now a clock being used. Liberal Democrats making big gains across the country. We've beaten the Conservatives in Bath and in Brentwood, in Hertfordshire and in Hinckley. We're making gains off Labour. We've increased our majority in Hull. And we're making huge gains across the country against the Conservatives. We're continuing to make sure the blue wall tumbles down. Yeah. Mixing his metaphors there, the clock is ticking on Rishi Sunak, but then he's also talking about the blue wall, obviously previous election. And um, I think you, we showed you that one. There was a wall build up of blue bricks and he goes through it um, with a orange hammer or whatever their colour is, yellow, isn't it? Um, the Greens, as far as I know, don't seem to do these pool clips in the morning where there's sort of a politician that speaks to the video cameras. Maybe the video cameras didn't go to them or they didn't go, I'm, I'm not sure, but that's why we're not showing you the Greens at this point. We will come to a clip from a Green politician a little bit later. Um, moving on from the politicians though, let's have a look at what the wonks say. Um, this is the BBC's projected national vote share. Um, so as you can see, um, this is if everyone had voted in local elections or if every region of the country had had local elections, because obviously not everyone did. We in London didn't have local elections here. And if that had been the case, um, they project that 35% would have voted for Labour, 26% would have voted for the Conservatives, 20% would have voted for the Lib Dems and 19% would have voted for other. Um, now, that's not a projection of what would happen in a general election, as is explained by John Curtis here speaking to the BBC. Yes, this is the moment that we've been working for by collecting the results in 750 so-called key wards. These are places that we think give us a representative illustration of the performance of the parties in these local elections. And from that, we've then projected as to what we think would happen 
If everybody had had local elections on Thursday, which of course uh, they didn't. A crucial thing we should say straight away, this is not a forecast of what the outcome of a general election would have been if it had been held on Thursday. It is a measure of the performance of the parties in the local elections designed to make it possible for us to compare the performance this year with previous years. So, headline number one, the Labour Party's lead over the Conservatives at nine points is their biggest lead on this estimate in any set of local elections since the Labour Party lost power in 2010. It beats the seven points of 2012, and to that extent at least, it means the Labour Party have met what many might regard as their minimal target for these local elections on this kind of estimate, to have demonstrated to have done better, relative to the Conservatives at least, than at any previous set of local elections. Headline number two, however, is that um, that nine-point lead says as much about the Conservative Party and the difficulties that it is in as it does uh, give a, a clear impression of the progress made by Labour. What do I mean by that? Well, at 26%, the, Liber the Conservatives are not quite at their worst performance ever, indeed not even quite their worst performance uh, since 2010. They were even worse than in 2013. But it's not far off rock bottom. Um, it's not far off where John Major was at uh, in the 1990s. So it's a reminder, as all those uh, Conservative losses which are still mounting up have illustrated, of the difficulties the Conservatives have found themselves in these local elections. Aaron Bastani, um, you're, I think you're the closest thing Navarra Media has to a John Curtis. What's your take on the election results? I definitely don't think that's true, Michael. Um, very, 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 very good night for the Lib Dems. Very, 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 very good night for the Greens. Pretty underwhelming for Labour, and I'll explain why. Firstly, obviously Labour is saying this is a fantastic night. They said the same in, in the local elections last year. They gained 100 councillors across the UK. I think in England they may even have lost councillors. They lost councillors in places like Croydon, Tower Hamlets. Uh, so very average. Let's say average, because, of course, the baseline on last year was four years before that. Well, Labour actually quite well. So let's say last year was average. 2021, I think they lost around 300 councillors. We all remember that. It was just an absolute nightmare scenario for Keir Starmer. They were blaming Corbyn for it. Um, so this is the first set of decent-ish local elections for Keir Starmer. Um, and as all the pundits are sort of saying, it doesn't really suggest they're on for a big majority. And then going back to what we were hearing really at the top from Rishi Sunak, people aren't that enthused about Labour or Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. People cannot be enthused about a leader of a political party and they can still become the prime minister. In fact, that was relatively normal um, you know, throughout the 1970s. People weren't that enthused about Jim Callaghan or Ted Heath or Harold Wilson. I say the 70s because, of course, that's a useful benchmark for us. Uh, economic stagnation, big political questions not being answered, both parties really having huge ideological de debates and often... Uh, developing ideological fractures as a result. So this idea that, oh, you have to be Mr. Charisma and you have to be blowing away the government in local elections in order to win a general election and to form a government is, is not true. However, let's on course to winning a big majority. And I think that is pretty strange given so with trust, and even more recently, we were seeing polling saying that Labour's going to get 250 majority, you know, bigger majority than they got with Blair in 97. I think that's pie in the sky. I think, by the way, in Labour's defence, it was always pie in the sky. Uh, I think 
could be the big from from these elections for me. And of course, you're looking at turnout at 30%. Not the whole country has voted. The big the big takeaway is that you know any majority that Labour can win in 2024 will be a big accomplishment. And again, important to say in Labour's defence, to win any kind of majority, having lost the Tories by 80 seats in, in 2019, is a really big deal. So Labour kind of limping towards victory. I think the results are broadly um, uh, anger with the government rather than enthusiasm with Labour. But fundamentally, that, that doesn't matter. What Starmer is decent at doing, he's certainly better at doing this than Jeremy Corbyn, is mitigating attack lines, right? Nobody's excited about the guy, but at the same time, he's clearly not subject to the same kinds of attacks that Jeremy Corbyn was, the ferocity of those attacks. Somebody on the left might say, well, that's because he hasn't got any policies which are going to upset the establishment. I would personally agree with that, but it's true nevertheless. And I think that's probably one of the big selling points from Starmer right now that particularly the Labour right are looking to articulate and, and convey and say, look, we've got somebody who can do this. Your guy couldn't. It's the Labour left. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I was thinking, you know, if I was Keir's people, what would I be thinking sort of listening to that? I'd say, well, you're, you're criticising us for only being on course to win a small majority. You know, they'd say that that would have been seen as pie in the sky just a couple of years ago. I suppose, I mean, you, you, you've already said it as well, but I think their strategy was never to inspire people, right? It was to say, we can get through this, we can be the Conservatives just by reassuring some of the right people instead of inspiring anyone. Obviously, they were helped along by the fact that the Tories completely self-combusted. I don't think the strategy would have worked otherwise. But I agree with you that, you know, it's it, it, it wouldn't have been, it's still a credit, you know, electorally, I think there's a lot to say against Keir Starmer, but it's still a credit that he has managed to take advantage of the Tories' failures. And that's because I think he has managed to not really scare off anyone. Disappointed a lot of people, hasn't terrified many people. Um, let's look at a few notable council results. There were some big wins for Labour. One example is Plymouth. Um, so you can see here, Labour have won an overall majority, um, flipping the council from the Conservatives. And you can see Labour up five, Tories down eight. So big win um, for Labour there. Another example is Hartlepool, um, where you can see, again, um, flipping the council from Tory to Labour. Labour up six, Tories down two. Actually, this is not quite a majority, is it? This is a, a neck and neck. So Labour have exactly half of seats. So if they had got a few more votes, I think it's a very small number of votes in one close ward, they would have had an overall majority. Stoke-on-Trent next. Um, so that's the council where Tory MP Jonathan Gullis is an MP. So he's going to be very concerned about this. This looks like probably the most impressive one for Labour, right? So you can see that before um, this was a Tory council, now... Um, Labour have gained 14 seats and they are on 29. The Conservatives are on 14, although it looks like most of those seats came from independents. Um, there were also some big wins for the Lib Dems. Um, Stratford-upon-Avon was probably the most dramatic of those. So you can see there Lib Dems up 15, Conservatives down 14. That's massive um, to give the Lib Dems an overall, uh, give them overall control. So flipping it from a Conservative majority. And um, as we're going to talk about a fair bit this evening, the Greens had a good night. So in mid-Suffolk, for the first time ever, the Greens have won an overall majority on a district council. Um, and you can see that was by winning 11 seats. The Conservatives lost 11, the Greens now on 22. So they doubled their seats on that council to now have an overall majority. Aaron, looking across the country, looking at these sort of... um regional results. Um, which which stand out to you 
Have we missed any that you think we, we should have included? Um, no, not really. Um, I, I quickly want to add, because you've started there with a sort of big macro analysis, and then you've looked at some some really astonishing results, uh, so by Suffolk for the Greens and whatnot. Really important to say, Labour have done actually quite poorly with graduate voters in constituencies with large numbers of graduates. They've kind of underwhelmed. And in places with fewer graduates, they've done quite well. And that might not be to Labour's credit, but what that means in a general election is quite important. It means that in places like the Red Wall, which sociologically have, they're older, they have fewer graduates, um, they have quote-unquote more C2DE voters who might be homeowners in their 60s who previously voted Labour but didn't in 2019. Labour are now picking those people up. And then in seats where there are fewer, uh, more graduates rather, the Liberal Democrats are picking those up. So what we're going to see is, I think, a really nasty situation for the Conservatives where they're losing uh, seats back to Labour in the Red Wall. At present, that's how the things look, right? Uh, but they're also very, very vulnerable, um, particularly to, you know, quote-unquote Remain parties or socially liberal parties like the Lib Dems uh, and the Greens. And one variable we didn't see last night, but in a general election probably will be there, is reform, because they may get three or four percent. Now, again, that sounds insignificant. But when you look at it, reform, Labour, Greens, Lib Dems, you know, they're being nibbled from all sides. It's going to be a real challenge for the Tories in the next general election. Let's talk about the Greens. Um, they have had a decent election, but can that translate to a general election? The deputy leader, Zach Polanski, spoke to Politics Live. So I think people are increasingly seeing the Green Party as a brave party that's willing to speak out for the mood of the country, to stand out against this, stand up against this Conservative government, and also to have much better policies than the Labour Party and implement them. If you look somewhere like Bristol, which is one of our target seats for the next election... Yeah, although not, of course, in these local elections. Absolutely, but it's an example of where there's 20 seats in, uh, for councillors. 17 of those are already green. So you can see, if people vote in the same ways locally as they do nationally, and I realise that's a challenge, mm. and we're ready to face that, then can't Denya will be the next MP for Bristol West. And that's exciting for the Green Party although to continue what, our representation. Although, actually, what do you say to Daisy Cooper, uh, the Liberal Democrats deputy leader, who says it's all very well at a local level, the Greens um, are putting in a relatively strong performance. But at a national level, you've had one MP for years, Caroline Lucas, and she took that seat really off Labour. If you want to kick the Tories out, you vote Liberal Democrat, you don't vote Green at a national level. Well, again, I think it's absurd. There's lots of places where we're extending administrations. Places like Lancaster, Lewis, all of those places where we've had green councillors, we're getting more green councillors. But I think the wider point is this, that we know the difference Caroline Lucas has made in Parliament. And we see the difference that it makes to have an elected green in the room. Someone speaking powerfully and compassionately, holding truth to power. And I think... Green, uh, green politicians aren't necessarily professional politicians. They're cleaners, doctors, teachers, nurses. They're people who are embedded in their communities. And I think people want more of that kind of politics. And it's brilliant to see these results coming right. in because it's really validated. Aaron, what do you make of the, the Greens here? I mean, it is a good night for them. I have been sort of a bit critical of the Greens recently because I think, I mean, my argument has been that it's a bit of a flop. They're having this sort of constantly changing co-leaders. I can never remember who the, who the co-leaders of the Green Party are. I think if they just sort of said, Caroline Lucas is our leader and kept her since like 2010, then they could be a real national force. Everyone would know who she is. You know, a kind of left-wing Nigel Farage. But clearly they took a different strategy. Um, and does this show it's, it's sort of paying off? I mean, how do you... How do you interpret the Green Party's success or strategy over the past few years? Well, I think you're right to um, hold it in contrast to what you see with UKIP or the Brexit Party. I think that's inevitable because they don't have a platform like the European elections. 
they're not going to come first in a nationwide election as UKIP and the Brexit Party did in European elections in uh, in um, 2014 and 2019. I've got some some uh, council seats updated from what you said earlier on. Labour up 437. The Greens up 197, right? The Greens up 197. Labour up 437. So the Greens have basically added almost half as many as Labour has. And of course, they started with barely anything. So that's a really extraordinary uh, accomplishment by the Greens. And as you hinted at there, the, the strategy for the Greens is quite similar to the Liberal Democrats really over the course of the 1980s, which is to build up local sites of power through local government, through community activism, and use that as a launch pad to win seats at Westminster. Now, right now, their, their target really, and I think the only plausible seat they can win, is in Bristol, presently Bristol West. Thangham Debonair is the MP, Labour, Labour MP, awful MP, by the way, just terrible terrible politics, I think just a very unprofessional person. Um, and they have a majority of something like 30,000. Now that might sound unassailable, but then you go into it a little bit. In 2015, before Corbyn in that constituency, the Greens finished 5,000 votes behind them. Uh, there's going to be boundary changes, which actually favor the Greens. As uh, Zach said there, in the constituency itself, I think 17 of the 20 councillors are the Greens. So on a geographical level, in this area, in local elections, the Greens are doing phenomenally well. So I, I think there's a decent chance they win that seat. I don't think they're going to win it. I think even saying they're probably winning it, I think given the, the 30,000 majority for Labour, that would be a stunning accomplishment. But so was winning Brighton in 2010. So I, I think it's plausible. And I, I think really, Michael, the proof is in the pudding for this strategy. They're going to live or die by it. If they continue to have results at local elections like this, which I think they will, They've had fantastic local election results since 2019, pretty much every year. I mean, in 2019, uh, have I got it here? They won 198 councillors in this same round, right? So just defending that, because of course, many of those were voted in on an anti-Brexit ticket, just defending those councillors this time around perhaps could have been a challenge, just keeping those councillors. But instead, so far, they've added 197. So really, really big. And I think they'll continue to do that at a local level. The big question is, can they win that second MP? If they win that second MP, Michael, then I think naysayers like you, who would say, well, we need a farage of the green left, um, rather than this sort of Carla Denier and Adrian Ramsey, who are the co-leaders, Michael, uh, they are more like chair people who you know, coordinate uh, almost like a, a confederation of parties across the country, uh, I, I think they'll probably be vindicated to some extent. But I would also add, and this is probably where I depart from the Greens, but I agree with you, in the next 12 months, there is a huge space for a different kind of political party having a megaphone at Westminster and in the media, talking about the cost of living crisis, talking about decarbonization, talking about a different way of running the economy. You don't have to call that quote unquote radical, Right, because it shouldn't be radical saying that people's wages outstrip inflation. It shouldn't be radical, but it is because nobody else is talking like that. So I think there's a big challenge for the Greens if they can do that. If they can get that megaphone into the national media, talk about decarbonisation, talk about uh, cost of living and falling living standards and a broken status quo. If they can do that, whilst also continuing to really make hay in these local campaigns, as they have done now for four consecutive elections, um, or three consecutive elections, because of course we had COVID, then uh, I think they have a really, really, really good chance. I remember speaking to Carla Denya not long ago, I interviewed her for Navarro Media, the piece is up at navarromedia.com. And their, their ambition really is to have five or six MPs by 2030. Uh, I think they're probably looking at a second one in 2024. And then ahead of 2030, they want five or six MPs. If they achieve that, it's going to be a major, major shift. All of a sudden, they'll be second in many seats. That puts real pressure on Labour in a way that probably is actually quite analogous to uh, UKIP with the Tories. Now, it's a little bit different because 
the seats where the Greens are picking up, as we've seen with um, with some of these council victories, they're really taking Tory voters. So the idea that these are all dyed-in-the-wall socialists voting for the Greens is not really true. So that's going to be a big challenge for them. It's similar to the Liberal Democrats, right? The Liberal Democrats have a very strange coalition of some Labour votes in some places, some Tory votes in others. I think for the Greens almost, it's good they're not growing too quickly because what that could lead to is a kind of ideological incoherence and trying to please everybody all the time and then pleasing nobody none of the time, which is sort of what the German, German Greens did in the early 2000s. So I think in a way this is a positive thing, uh, but in the next 12 months they really need to have a national message in the media because it's been sorely lacking. But I suppose that's where my point comes, because I, I, I really think they're going to struggle to have a national voice in the media, in, in the media when they've got co-leaders who are really new and they change all the time, right? Because I mean, you know, the, the, it's not just the media that like a figurehead, the public also easily relate to a figurehead because they might remember who they are. How, what do you mean change all the time? They do. They do. They, well, they've, they've they change they've every four been, years. Yeah, that's 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 often for a small party. For a small party, you want to have the same leader who people learn and remember because you're only going to get coverage in the newspapers like every once a month or something, right? So if if there's only coverage once a month, it's going to take a long people a long time for people to get to know you. That's why with Nigel Farage and UKIP, he was leader of it for like decades, right? Because uh, and what that meant is that even if you get a small amount of coverage at the beginning, people start to remember. Oh, who's that Nigel Farage guy? Whereas with the Greens, the reason no one's going to remember who their leader is is because they change every four years and they only get in the newspaper every month, which is why I think a small party has to behave a little bit different to a big one. I mean, I would, I would push back on that a bit. I don't disagree with you, by the way. I think ideally you would have a Nigel Farage figure. Two, two, two things, though. Firstly, I think Caroline Lucas could do that anyway as the only MP the party has. I think she could do that. You know, Caroline Lucas has already accomplished far more in terms of Westminster politics than Nigel Farage ever did. She's won a seat and she's defended it Three times, right? So I, I, I would sort of push back on that. She could do that without being the party leader. Secondly, Nigel Farage was a one-off. Um, and this idea that, oh, if they just have a leader and then that not, they don't fiddle with them, that they'll be like Nigel Farage. No. no I've, I've met Farage. I've spoken to Farage. The man is a political media entrepreneur. He is, he is a very, very, very unusual character in British politics. I mean, the fact that he couldn't be contained within the Conservative Party is a big reason why we had Brexit in the first place. So I think he's quite a sweet, generous character. And, and I think to say, well, if you just stick with one leader, then and I know you're not saying this. I'm sort of taking your argument to its end point here. If you just stick with one leader, then they'll inevitably be like Nigel Farage and make the issues that they want to talk about more salient. I don't think that's quite true. Where I think they're headed, and I think this is a good thing, I think, I think there's partly some wisdom in what you're saying, Michael, but I slightly disagree with it. Where I think they're headed, and I think this is a good thing, is that you have people like Zach Polanski now who are building a bigger profile. You're going to have green councils over the next, say, two, three, four years. I think if Carla wins that seat in Bristol West, I think you're right. You, you need people, you need figureheads who the, who the public can identify with. Oh, I like what she has to say or he has to say, which they already do to some extent with with Caroline Lucas. And the more of those, the better. I think they're getting to that place, Michael. They're a really, really young party. In terms of their impact and their sort of footprint in local government, it was basically non-existent until the late 2010s. We're, we're in 2023, you know? So I think that they're very much thinking in, in the long term. I think probably by, you know, they probably want to be in government by 2040 with PR. That, that is the kind of trajectory they think on. Now, you might not like that. You might say, well, why can't they be like UKIP? Why can't they all do it 100 miles an hour with Farage? Well, let's look at Brexit. They've got everything they wanted. But you know, I think the way that Brexit's going at the moment, I think Brexit could be incredibly unpopular 
very quickly. And maybe people in 10, 15 years want to overturn it. You don't want to be like the, uh, the roundheads, Michael, in the English Revolution, the English Civil War. You don't want to win this giant victory, which nobody sees coming, behead the king, and then have your revolution capsized and undone within 10 to 15 years. So I think there is some genuine wisdom to this approach. And I think fundamentally, actually, the growth and success of the Green Party is inseparable from us getting PR in this country, because I don't think you can trust the Liberal Democrats as the only party that cares about this. I simply don't think it's going to happen. However, if you have the Lib Dems and the Greens, both at a local level, but also at Westminster, pushing Labour and the Conservatives, I think that's how you're going to make this a national issue. So I agree with you to some extent, but I think the, the Greens are doing really well. And as I've said, if they win that second MP in 2024, I think they're totally vindicated. That was a very um, persuasive uh, defense of the green strategy, which I mean, it, it is just very starkly different from from Nigel Farage, also Podemos in in Spain. They saw this is the moment of opportunity. We're going to have this strong leader, sort of Bonapartist strategy. And, but I mean, in in your defense, Aaron, or in defense of the Green Party strategy, their rise and fall, their, their fall was almost as dramatic as their rise. Um, so maybe playing the long game does make some sense. We have some polling data for you. Uh, why did people vote the way they did? Um, in these local elections. Well, Focal Data polled people who said they were planning to switch their vote in these elections. So they voted for a different uh, party before and now they were voting for, well, a different party. Um, so these are the people who, who would have made the difference, the most interesting voters um, this time around. And these were their priorities. So you can see here, all swing voters, so those voting differently in 2023 locals to the last locals. Now, the biggest concern by a very long way was the poor state of the economy, cost of living, so 35%. And for people who voted conservative in 2019, that was 39%. This was by a long way the most important issue. Um, low trust in politics and politicians generally was just behind. Now, many of our viewers will probably look at that and think this is Starmer breaking his promises. Um, I think considering the fact that this is 26% of Tory voters from 2019. This probably also has something to do with Partygate. Um, council tax is too high. That's probably always around third when it comes to local elections. I'm annoyed about the state of public services, 19%. And then you have sort of Brexit on 13%. Let's go to the low priorities. So these didn't make it to the top half of people's concerns. We've got uh, climate action, 12%, not too bad. Um, and then right at the bottom, um, you've got, I prefer Jeremy Corbyn to Keir Starmer. I prefer Rishi Sunak to Keir Starmer. There's not enough house building in my area. I don't like the government's anti-immigration asylum seekers rhetoric or policies. So sort of or, or climate and net zero as well. So some of these sort of culture war issues and then also personality-based issues don't seem to have motivated people too much um, in these elections. It seems to be generally um, people who really care about the cost of living crisis. Um, Aaron, what's your take um, on those polling results? Well, my my um, my thoughts with Matthew Goodwin at this time. Uh, what happens? The what happens? The new the new elite hypothesis. So you know, I, I said a few moments ago that Labour did better in places with fewer graduates, and they've struggled, comparatively speaking, in places with more graduates, where the Lib Dems are, are doing well. Which in a general election is, is fine for Labour. It's a big problem for the Conservatives. Um, this kind of complements that, which is to say, you know, people don't care about these quote unquote cultural issues. They just don't. Now, I know, I know. Now, this is what they do. You say that, and then something like Matthew Goodwin will say, 80% of the public cares about immigration. They, they agree with the Rwanda policy, which, by the way, is, is, has a, I think it has a plurality. I don't think it has a majority. But it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's quote-unquote popular. It's, it's definitely popular 2019 Tory voters, which is what they need to win again, right? That's what I'll say. But hold on. 
let's talk about migration, but you don't want to talk about migration. You want to talk about things like teaching LGBT uh, rights to kids in schools, right? They're two two separate issues. And the idea that you can fight and win a general election and govern a country like the UK, population of 65 million people on the back of what, you know, what TikTok ads people are watching and and, and trans influencers. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, It's outlandish. And of course, we we are we hear this from the right. We think, oh, maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe people do care about it. Because of course, you do have uh, US Republicans. You have the experience of Trump in 2016. You think, well, maybe there's something to it. But as you've said so many times in the show, Michael, Trump wins in 2016 because he talks about deindustrialization, immigration, make America great again, industrial policy, American jobs for American workers. Now, that's not the rhetoric that necessarily the left likes to hear, although many of those policies they like, right? You know, um, reindustrialization for sure. Uh, but that's very different to Donald Trump of 2022 talking about, I don't know, injecting yourself with bleach. And I think we have a similar thing here, which is, yes, people like Matthew Goodwin were right about Brexit. They were right. And the liberal left slept on it. But there's a bit of a recency bias going on, right? Recency bias is a cognitive bias. Well, I was right about this thing, so I must be right about this thing. No, right? If the Tories try and win a general election on LGBT rights and TikTok influencers and God knows what, then they're not going to get very far. People's mortgages are more expensive. Their rent's gone up. Council tax bill on average now is above two grand a year. Electricity prices increased by 60% in 2022. Baseline of inflation is more than 10%. Food inflation, 20%. So all this stuff, all this kind of speculation in, in, in legacy media, Rishi's done this, they've turned this around, they've somehow had this ridiculous set of polls, or oh, this should this should worry Sir Softy. Mate, if we go into the next general election in late 2024, and inflation is still high, and interest rates are still high, and the economy is not moving, it doesn't matter. You can call him Mr. 99 with a flake. It doesn't matter. You can call him Mr. Marshmallow. It doesn't matter. You can call him any stupid childish name you like. The fundamentals are so poor it's very hard to see how the Tories get re-elected. Now, that might not mean a lay majority, as, as we've said at the start of the show. These, these, these um, results aren't, aren't extraordinary for Labour. But it, it is enough, I think, to get them over the line and form the next government. Next story. The status of Jeremy Corbyn means that there is lots of interest as to what happens when someone is kicked out of the Labour Party and then stands against them. Well, we have a couple of data points from these local elections. The first is the case of Alan Gibbons. He had been a Labour councillor in Liverpool until he lost the whip for voting against a budget that included cuts. He was then in April last year expelled from the party. That was for having shown support for the group Socialist Appeal, who would go on to be prescribed by the Labour Party. Now, instead of quitting politics, Gibbons decided to do something else stand for re-election as an independent. Here he is campaigning on election day and he has returned with a stomping majority. Gibbons received a whopping 77% of the vote. That's 1,428 votes in total. Um, The Labour candidate in second place only got 360. Now our second data point for you is a man named Cal Corkery. Corkery was leader of the Labour group in Portsmouth before being expelled in January of this year. Now, that was for sharing a Facebook post in 2016, again from Socialist Appeal, and that was five years before they were prescribed by Labour. So sharing a post from a group which then five years later goes on to be prescribed gets you kicked out of the party even if you're head of a Labour group on a council. Um, 
as we said, Alan Gibbons um, stood as an independent. So did Cal Corkery. And you can see him here campaigning with constituents. And like Gibbons, Corkery was re-elected on Thursday. He received 910 votes, beating the Labour candidate who received 780. Um, these were some of his supporters celebrating at the count. Aaron, we're looking at, you know, small numbers of candidates here and also, you know, a relatively small number of voters. I mean, in the case of Alan Gibbons, a very stomping majority, but these are council seats. Um, yeah. How much can we extrapolate from these? Is there a lesson we can draw here for what might happen if someone such as Jeremy Corbyn um, stands against the Labour yeah. Party as an independent? Totally. Totally. I think that I think actually it's a really interesting story. Prior to 2019 and around 2019 too, Generally speaking, independent, it's still the case, by the way, but there were many quote unquote independents doing very well uh, who were really on the right of politics, um, pro Brexit, really, who, who didn't want to be, who weren't conservatives. They hadn't brought in, um, I'm thinking really not 2019, yeah, 2019, May 2019. They had Theresa May, they hadn't uh, embraced, you know, Boris Johnson's uh, oven ready deal, which of course famously wasn't even, you know, microwavable. It was, it was still uh, very much frozen and, uh, you know, had gone off several weeks earlier. Um, so this is kind of reminiscent of that to me in a way. And I think it's, it's, it's good, which is to say that there's a, a sp there's a political space now to the left of the Labour Party and the people can win. Um, and you see that with regards to the Green Party, some of them, not all the Greens, as I've said, they're picking up places that should be Tory, uh, but some of them, and independents too. And for instance, Cal Corkery, Michael, I know Cal, for dis full disclosure, Cal was at my wedding. You know, I know Cal very well. I live in Portsmouth. He's a fantastic councillor, great at casework. You know, he's the archetypal guy, what you want with a councillor, right? I think he used to be a housing officer for the city. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a working class councillor who looks after the people in his ward. That's what you're meant to do. And he's very good at it. He's very, very good at it, which is why he got reelected. And I, would, I think it would be a really positive shift over the next several years if we start to see more of these people contest local elections. Because Cal was, he was thrown out of the Labour Party. He was expelled for a bunch of things. The only thing that's really stuck is this, uh, this, this Facebook post. Um, and, you know, and there's an alternative world out there where Cal Corkery doesn't win, sulks and, and walks off. But he didn't. He stood and he won, which is, I think, quite an extraordinary achievement. And, you know, Cal Corkery might stand in, in a Westminster election as an independent. He might get several thousand votes in 2024. I don't know. And, and, and that presents real problems for Labour locally. It just does. I'm not saying that with any glee because it would, it would mean the Lib Dems get in. I don't particularly like the Lib Dems. But what that should be is a, is a warning to the Labour Party establishment, stop making headaches for your own MPs and your own councillors unnecessarily because there will be an overhead. If you try and quote unquote cancel and expel talented local councillors because they're too left-wing for you, they may end up being your worst nightmare in the precise councils you think you've sort of eliminated them from. So it's a really positive development. And I think it does mean, when you look at something like Corbyn, that actually a local left-wing brand, when they've been excluded from the Labour Party, can still do extraordinarily well. I mean, the Alan Gibbons result is just, wow. And I hope off the back of that, either these, I, I would like them to either join a party, I'd love them to join the Greens, frankly, or to formalise their efforts because I think fundamentally that's what you need. You need collective action, you need organizations that people can join. 
Uh, and I'll finish with this. It's not just independents from the left who are doing well. Again, in Portsmouth, Portsmouth independents have basically been uh, the party which has benefited from Tory collapse. I think they won a few more seats last night, maybe one more ward. But they've got in the north of the city, very working class, Penny Mordaunt's the MP. You know, it's the Portsmouth independents now who are really picking up, uh, who are pick, picking up councillors. And that can't be the future of politics, right? This is a, we're hyper-local, we're not political, we're not ideological, because we know where that ends up. It just ends up with nimbyism and bollards and not doing anything. It's like the Lib Dems. We have enough of that in politics. So I think it would be fantastic if we get more of these efforts, but uh, people should make them concrete. It shouldn't just be a one-man band. And obviously, in the case of Cal Corkery, it's a, it's a one-man band because that was the situation imposed on him. It's important to say there's another councillor in his ward who also left, but they haven't started a political party. I think collective action and organisations which people can join is so, so important. And I think it would, frankly, put the frighteners up the Labour Party if some of these people did start to join the Greens. I do think that would start to scale Labour. We're not quite there yet. I think it's going to take five, ten years before Labour actually take those to their left seriously again, both within and outside the party. But I think this is probably a big part of it. Let's go to our next story. We've got two stories, um, non-local elections related. We'll go through relatively quickly. When we hear from the World Health Organization, it's rarely good news. Today was a bit different. This was their Director General, Dr. Tedros, speaking to the press. Yesterday, the emergency committee met for the 15th time and recommended to me that I declare an end to the public health emergency of international concern. I have accepted that advice. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. Yes! Get your party poppers out. After a grim three years, we're finally free from COVID. We can forget about it. Well, not quite. This is what Dr. Tedros said next. However, that does not mean COVID-19 is over as a global health threat. Last week, COVID-19 claimed life every three minutes. And that's just the deaths we know about. As we speak, thousands of people around the world are fighting for their lives in intensive care units. And millions more continue to live with the debilitating effects of post-COVID-19 condition. This virus is here to stay. It's still killing, and it's still changing. The risk remains of, a new, of new variants emerging that cause new surges in cases and deaths. The worst thing any country could do now is to use this news as a reason to let down its guard, to dismantle the systems it has built or to send the message to its people that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. So it's a bit of a, well, it's maybe unfair to call it a mixed message from Dr. Tedros, but the, the messages we're receiving, I suppose, as citizens of this country are somewhat confusing because you've got, you've got all these headlines saying the WHO says the COVID health emergency is over. Like, brilliant, amazing. But then he's saying, don't do these things that our government did like a year ago. I mean, when I was listening to that, I was like, that ship has sailed. Elsewhere, he said, don't take apart your test and trace systems. I mean, I, I think all countries, or most countries, I think potentially nearly all countries did that quite a while ago. So it does seem like the WHO is 
sort of, um, you know, speaking in a way that governments haven't been listening to for a while, potentially. I mean, Aaron, what do you make of this um, announcement? It's no longer a, a global emergency, but at the same time, the WHO wants basically everyone to be taking it more seriously than any governments are. All I can say, Michael, is Dr. Tedros shouldn't go into sales. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine this guy trying to sell you a car? You don't need this car. I mean, you really need the car, but you don't need the car, okay? <laughs> you, you're going to need an object which takes you from A to B, which has got a good fuel economy, it's comfortable, you've got air conditioning, but you don't want this car, okay? I mean, you might need a car, you really need a car, you don't want this car. I mean, it's kind of frustrating, Michael. Uh, but look, maybe this is just that in bureaucracies, there's probably some people in the WHO who think we should adopt this position, others who think we should adopt this position. And what you get is this kind of technocratic gibberish, which nobody really understands. Um, I mean, I'm taking it as a signal that fundamentally we're not going to see the same kinds of things uh, that we saw in, in, in 2020, 2021 reemerge. I, I don't think we need a test and trace system anymore. Um, so I, I disagree with Dr. Tedros on that front. I do think there are many things our government could be doing to take COVID more seriously than it is, such as sort of installing proper ventilation, for example, um, giving people proper sick leave. Um, but I do think that what the WHO is saying at the moment seems a little bit like, you know, we're, we're no longer in an emergency situation, but we still want you to be keeping, you know, test and trace, for example, is, is really, I think, a bit of an emergency um, measure. I mean, obviously, we want to use that for new viruses and stuff, but COVID is endemic now. So I'm not really sure how much use that kind of system would be. Um, now, there'll be some people watching saying this is a callous thing to say. There are lots of people very concerned about COVID. Absolutely. I think we need to be getting better quality antivirals. They have a better antiviral in the United States than they have here. Lots of people sort of campaigning um, for that to be rolled out. Um, but I have also spoken to, um, you know, some epidemiologists who I really respect who sort of say, you know, th this will become like another coronavirus, not necessarily because it becomes less virulent, um, but because we are all gradually building up lots of immunity to this thing. So I think the idea that we still want to treat this as, a, as, a, as, a, as an absolute emergency and a priority in our politics, probably we have moved on from that. So I think you know it's, it's probably a good thing that it's no longer um, a, a public emergency of international concern. Um, I'm, I'm potentially not quite where Dr. Tedros is, um, but I am definitely think we should be taking it more seriously than our government is. Um, so I'd say I'm, I'm taking a very centrist position here, Aaron. Were you persuaded? And not especially, no. Tedros, when, it, when I heard Dr. Tedros, I just think Rick Ross, and he didn't say anything particularly serious. He seemed to be wildly contradicting himself from one minute to the next. But the, the WHO, and obviously large bureaucracies, particularly ones which are multinational, always have people disagreeing with them, and it's always about politics, right? I mean, in the WHO, my God, Michael, if you want to talk about an organization which is in the crosshairs of some really, you know, some really powerful interests. I mean, if Trump wins again um, in 2024, I think the first thing he'll do is probably take aim at the WHO and say, you owe us $100 billion. China needs to give us reparations. You know, there is an obsession on the American right that China basically controls the WHO. You know, it's all part of this World Economic Forum conspiracy. So I, I think a lot of it's politics. And Really, when it comes to public health messaging, the lesson we've got out of the last several years is you probably don't want it to be political. Uh, but it, a very, very, very strange, very strange um, uh, intervention, shall we say. We'll go to a final story. The government had a surprising enemy on Question Time this week. The right-wing commentator Peter Hitchens, who, perhaps surprisingly, spoke in favour of the rail unions. 
the first thing we have to recognize in, in all these pay disputes is ask the question, who's doing the pushing? Whose conditions have been changed by whom? And everybody in this country who's, who's at work and paid at the moment is being pushed by inflation and a rising cost of living. The wages which they had two years ago are not the wages they have now. They're worth considerably less. And under those circumstances, people who have the power to try and get back some of what they've lost from inflation can be expected to do so. And the railwaymen are among us. I wish the minister would stop referring to train drivers and what they're paid. Obviously, they are part of the dispute, but most of the people who are, who are taking part in it are not train drivers and they aren't paid anything like that. And it's silly of him to, to keep saying that because it, 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 it muddies the waters. I don't know how, the, how best you can compromise. My own view of, of British governments and the railways has been for many years that the, it's the government which is, is, causes far more disruption to my twice daily travel on the trains than any union has ever done. Uh, the, the, the failure to maintain uh, the ludicrous experiment of privatization, which largely wrecked the railways, the constant track circuit failures, signal failures, and other things, which and, and, and currently I can't even get to work properly because there's a, a bridge has collapsed on my way to work. The, this is not a well-run, seriously invested service. And it's not taken seriously by the government, which runs a ministry for roads with railways tacked on. But I am not convinced that all justice in this is on the side of the government and the employers. And, I, and one of the reasons I'm not convinced of it is because people like the minister keep saying it's all about train drivers when it so patently isn't. People are facing, as I understand it, uh, the actual compulsory loss of jobs. In no, they're not. No, that's well, not nobody true. at all. That's, that's not gone, true. That's gone There's completely. There's no requirement for compulsory... There's no compulsory no, redundancy. No, but that one of the things yeah. that's been offered by the employers is no compulsory redundancy. And, so that, and that's so When the union has said that, that there are going to be lots of job loss, that's simply not true. So that was Peter Hitchens rather effectively taking the government to task. Um, this might surprise, I mean, it surprised me, I have to say, Aaron, um, and I'm sure it will surprise some of our viewers. Peter Hitchens, of course, is known as you know, not just a sort of centre-right columnist, but a very right-wing columnist, someone who's, you know, talks about bringing the death penalty back or anti-abortion. And, you know, he's also economically not left-wing. Um, why has he come out in favour of strikes? You've interviewed him before. You know the guy. Um, were you surprised when you saw this clip? No, I wasn't surprised, Michael. He has identified, to me, he said he's a social democrat on economic issues. Now, you might think that's ridiculous. I mean, so. Tony Blair, social democrat. Yeah, Tony Blair doesn't think that we should have rail and public ownership. So, I, I, look, on cultural social issues, Peter Hitchens over here, right? Not far right, but extreme right. And then on economic issues, it's kind of what should be the centre-left, like Nordic centre-left, right? Not the British centre-left. And actually, that's a, that's a really popular politics. It's not something we really talk about very often, but it's a really popular politics, you know, basically sort of red UKIP. Um, is, is a very popular politics. You know, 70, 60% of people want to see less migration. Uh, although people are more welcome to immigration uh, over time, it, it turns out. Since Brexit, people have been more receptive to the idea of immigration. Uh, but people generally want less immigration. But also on a case-by-case -case basis, even a majority of Tory voters favour bringing things like rail or Royal Mail back into public ownership. So actually what Peter Hitchens is articulating there is a very popular sort of convergence of right-wing um, orthodoxies on things like immigration, less so on abortion, just completely odds with the rest of the country, less so the death penalty, although it's important to say that's really a 50-50 split. And actually there's polling out there that says, so I think on, for ped pedophilia, um, a majority of people would support the death penalty. 
Again, it's something we don't really talk about on the left. I don't personally support the death penalty. Of course, if, if you kill somebody who's innocent, you can't bring them back. It's a pretty good argument against it. Uh, and clearly, with the death penalty in places like the United States, it hasn't really done much to curb crime. So, you know, he has some quite uh, esoteric, eccentric ideas with regards to the death penalty or abortion. Although he's not necessarily fanatical about it. He's not, he's not campaigning for them, it should be said. Uh, and, and then on the economy, yeah, he does have some, some sort of classically centre-left opinions. You know, Peter Hitchens, with, with that set of views, he probably would have been quite comfortable in the Labour Party in like the early 1950s. Um, and he would say he's, that's just him being sensible. Uh, but in, in the context of the British commentariat, despite the fact that, let's say, a good chunk of the public agree with that or sympathise with that set of views from a range of places, it's very rare to see a member of the commentariat saying that. So it can be quite surprising. And he is a bit of an iconoclast. He is a bit of a contrarian. But on this, he's not being a contrarian. He's been very, very consistent over a number of years. He supports public ownership of rail. You know, he's a big advocate of rail. He loves trains. He loves trains. Um, you know, he, he thinks that what we did to trains in this country in the 1960s were an appalling mistake. Um, and he, he supports public ownership and he thinks that trade unions are a big part of giving working people a fair slice of the pie. Um, and, you know, it probably tells us something that there aren't that many people in the media with his views coming from the right who actually are articulating things which a, a conservative probably would have said in the 50s as well. I said he could have been comfortable in in Labour in the 1950s. Frankly, his views on some things are quite reminiscent of somebody like Harold Macmillan, you know, um, with regards to respecting workers' rights, or not necessarily workers' rights, but respecting the, the, the agency uh, of the Labour movement um, and public ownership. Of course, you know, the Tories didn't try and fiddle with public ownership of the big utilities too much right through the 50s, right through the 60s, uh, when they were in charge. Anyway, of course, Wilson came in after 64. So, yes, he can seem eccentric, but actually there are historical parallels. And when it comes to public opinion, he's quite representative of quite a big chunk of the country. Um, we're going to go back to the local election results because when we started at 6pm, the Tories had lost just under 800 seats. More have declared um, now. So let's look at the situation. So the BBC scoreboard currently has the Tories um, well on the way to losing 1,000 seats. Um, so before the election, that was when sort of the, the Tories were sort of saying, um, oh, if losing a thousand would be a bad night. It looks like they are on track to lose a thousand. So a really bad night for the Conservatives. Um, one other result I want to point out, because it sort of contrasts with some of the things we've said today. Aaron, um, in Brighton and Hove, the Greens have lost nine seats and Labour have won overall control. Um, so is that worrying for their sort of strategy of digging deep local roots? I don't know. I mean, the, the the big downside, Michael, of winning power, which, you know, the Greens haven't really, I think they had a minority administration in, in Brighton um, in the early 2010s. They've never had an overall majority, which is this, this is a new, they're a new terrain um, uh, after today. Elsewhere, not Brighton, it should be said. But the problem once you have power, Michael, is that, of course, you're held accountable for mistakes. So, you know, it's very easy to be the insurgent anti-establishment, but, you know, once you're running a council and you don't do things and you, you do unpopular things with regards to housing applications or outsourcing or you're installing bike lanes or LTNs, which people don't like, or you're not doing those things when people are asking you to, then you're in trouble. So, I, look, I, I think just because people lose councillors in a particular uh, council, I don't think that's, that betokens bigger problems. It means there's probably been a, a local issue. Big picture here is the Greens have won circa 200 councillors so far. 
uh, on a local level, councillors come and go all the time, but structurally, clearly, they're a growing force in the country. I think as far as I remember, there was a sort of bin strike issue in, in Brighton as well, but I don't know in, in too much detail the politics um, of that district. Um, thank you, Aaron Bastani, for joining me this evening. Michael, great pleasure. Really interesting set of results. And I wish uh, our audience a fantastic weekend and a bank holiday Monday. Although, of course, Navarro Media will not be taking Monday off. Proudly Republican institution. I personally will be, although it's, it won't be in honor of the, the King and Queen. So Ash Sarkar is going to be in my chair on Monday, which is a very good reason to come back here at 6 p.m. Um, we've had 3,000 of you watching us tonight. Thank you so much. If you are new here, do make sure to keep up the habit. So as I say, come back at 6 p.m. for our next show. Ash will be in the chair. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.